Hey everybody, welcome back to the Neuroverse. I'm your host, Magnus Hudemark. I'm actually autistic and probably some other stuff too. The jury's out on that. Uh, I'm really glad to be back here. Glad to be hanging out with you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to today's show. Um, it's been kind of an exciting bit of time since the last time we hung out. Uh, we recently had the Stanford Neurodiversity Summit, which is based in California, but it was a virtual event this year. So there were something close to 3,000 people around the world attending. I got to attend. Uh, some of our friends from the UK were there. Uh, Dr. Nancy Doyle put, put on a, a great performance representing us. And uh, Judy Singer was there. She was great. So all of that's going to be out on YouTube. I'll try to get the links to the Neurodiversity Summit out on YouTube, um, the links from YouTube into the show notes so that if you have five days with nothing to do, you can just watch five straight days of YouTube content and enjoy it. Uh, about the show, a little bit of housekeeping. This show is listener supported. If you're hearing ads, something is wrong. Uh, there are no ads in this, in this show. It's listener supported. We have a Patreon if you have the interest and you have the means to support the show. Uh, every little bit counts. I'm not asking you to do anything that you don't feel comfortable doing. So if, if things are tight, no worries. Let somebody else pick it up for you. That's enough of that. Uh, oh, I do want to thank one new patron. Uh, it's, it's a very shadowy figure. They are a very shadowy figure. I don't know their name. I don't know their gender. It's TS. And I think TS was probably at the Neurodiversity Summit right after I got off the stage, the virtual stage. Uh, I saw that TS is supporting the show to the tune of 20 US dollars per month. So that's very generous. And I thank you. I thank you so much for that. All that being said, we have a guest today. And I'm not going to give you a long wind up. Um, I would like to introduce to you, Laura McConnell. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the show. Hi, Magnus. Nice to have you. And nice to be asked. Thank you. So, Laura, wow. You, you and I have slightly different accents. Um, yes, ju just a bit. Are you from the north? I am from Scotland. Oh, oh. So, I'm thinking from the north, like maybe you're from New York or New Jersey. I'm in the south. <laughs> I'm in the Carolinas. Yeah, no, I'm a bit, I'm a bit further up the Mason-Dixon line, so. Uh, and, and hang a hard right. Yeah. Go, yeah. go north a, a while a and hang a hard right. And swim a bit. And, and just a little bit. Yeah, I need a bit of a wetsuit or a, or a canoe, but yeah, I'm a little bit over there. So this is a truly global neuroverse show today, Indeed. Laura. Um, so so, tell, do you want to tell us a little bit about your your neurological topography, what what makes you a natural-born citizen of the neuroverse? So um, uh, well, I'm autistic. I'm actually autistic like yourself. I have ADHD. Um, ADHD was my primary diagnosis. Um, it was after my ADHD diagnosis that we, as an adult, we explored the um, autism diagnosis. Um, I am dyslexic. Um, I have hypermobility spectrum disorder. Oh, I've heard that. 
Yeah, um, I have I had hypermobility. That was diagnosed as a child, um, so I've known about that for a long time. What is that? Um, so my joints basically move further in the wrong direction than they should do. So um, it, it was mostly my ankles and my knees. And sometimes I would be walking along the street, straight in a straight line, doing nothing. And all of a sudden I would go over on my ankle oh, as a child. And that um, I injured myself quite badly. Um, lots of sprained ankles, a few broken ankles. Um, and then later on, that happened as well with my knee. I had um, turned in certain directions and I once broke um, or snapped, sorry, a ligament on the outside of my right knee that was called the lateral collateral ligament, which any anybody that's into anatomy might know better than me. But um, I became in quite sudden pain, quite deep pain um all of a sudden and this this is what it transpired to be um hypermobility is um it's i don't have something called ehlers danos syndrome which a lot of um, autistic people seem to also have comorbidly but hypermobility is i think within the sort of connective tissue realm of the um, um, sort of links to Ehlers, Ehlers Danis. Um, I also have um, sensory processing disorder, auditory processing disorder. Um, for a long time when I was younger, I would go um, for, for um, auditory appointments thinking that I might be deaf and was told many times that there's nothing wrong with your hearing and I burst into tears several times um, at uh, auditory appointments because I knew that there was something wrong with my hearing and how and it and it took a long while to unpick that it was really it was auditory processing and um, I also have hyperacusis um, as well, which is another auditory-related um, condition. And generally, that, that that's what we know of. There might be more, um, but that, that's what we know is of. Is that so all? That's all. It's, so it's like you, you went to the yeah. Neuroverse buffet line and took a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's like, yeah. I, um, I, and, and do you know what? And I still walk around, and I'm still put together, and I still manage to survive, and I'm not yes. falling apart, even with all of those sort of... All of those letters, many people go to university for lots of years to get that amount of letters after their name, but um, I, I'm here, I was born, and that's just me. So Now imagine that, you know, we, we hear, we're, we're, we're meeting Laura, and she's a, a perfectly wonderful person to talk to, and we're hearing this laundry list of, well, in the United States, we've got the DSM. Um, I'm not sure what it is in Scotland. Oh, we, we kind of do a combination of the DSM and the ICD. I think that ICD, psychiatrists yeah. kind of, um, they, they have a little bit of wiggle room. They have a, a bit of, um, they can put whatever is in their gift. I know that my psychiatrist um, has used the DSM sort of, um, for different diagnoses, but also if they were if they were to prefer the ICD, they have that wiggle room. So I think maybe in the UK we have... A bit of a, a luxury position, I suppose, in that they they can um, go from both um, manuals. Right. So I, I guess my my point is that um, we can have brains that are substantially um, different to the typical configuration, mm -hmm. and 
still have a perfectly wonderful life. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that, that, that's quite a lot of what drives me as well. I have a lot of these differences and I have a lot of challenges based around these differences, um, substantial challenges at times, but I still have a very wonderful life and, and I suppose get on with it. And I just, um, you know, I, and I, I live every single day um, and challenges come up and I'm very resilient against them. So I think that's one of the things that drives me and talking about um, neurodiversity and talking about autism and things is that um, we have our challenges, but we still we still live meaningful lives. So so tell me, does um, th- this this um long list of differences does this keep you from working no um i am a primary school teacher a teacher in, in the usa would be the equivalent of an elementary school teacher yes. although our sort of grades overlap a little bit so the grades of children i sometimes teach would be in your middle school okay um, as well so the children um the children i teach would be from your i suppose your pre-k age up until sort of um, grade seven, um, grade, grade, grade six, grade seven, grade eight sometimes. And um, they, so our system kind of overlaps a little bit with yours. And um, I have been, a, I was a class teacher for a decade. I had my own class. And then I've also done other roles um, in mainstream schools, not in schools that are for, particularly for children who have special um, um, educational needs. But I've been a behavior support teacher I've also been what's called a support for learning teacher, where you take children to do interventions, say literacy or maths interventions, to support um, a lot of emotional literacy interventions. And in the last few years, I've got involved a lot more with um, um, groups of autistic children who are in mainstream groups of children with ADHD and supporting their well-being and their learning in the mainstream school. So, and that's what sort of my focus in work is at the moment. So, so that's amazing. You're uh, a teacher that has um, so many of the differences and conditions that are also represented by your students. Yeah, um, my should, basically I am now teaching a lot, especially in the support for learning kind of role. I'm much more focused on the students who are more like me, who have all of my differences, um, who are all very different themselves, but all in their own way, very like me as well, which they, a lot of them really like. They like the fact that yeah. I say, well, you're so like me. Oh, I, I, I remember I, I identify with you and then they get a little bit confused when they hear me say that to someone else and they think, but they're nothing like me. And I'm like, but they are, they mm-hmm. are very similar to you. It's just, we don't always present outwardly in the same way, but it's the way that we think that's, that's the similarity. So I, I don't know about you when, when I was a child, when I was that age, I knew I was very different from my peers and uh, it was very rare to find an adult in my life, certainly at school, that I could identify with, um, to have a teacher that could understand like why I was having a hard time focusing on the lessons or why I was having a hard time with uh, three-dimensional concepts being shared on a two-dimensional chalkboard. Yes. So I, I have to imagine 
there's a special bond when teacher and student have similar experiences, similar challenges to draw on and, and yeah. certainly memories in your case, I'm sure. Yeah. And um, I'm quite, I'm very open with um, the students in my school and very open with the parents and the school, the staff. I've kind of taken a position where I, I feel I have to be an authentic person. I have to be authentic to myself. Um, there's different bits and bits and pieces of work that I've done here in Scotland that do mean that if they were to Google me, then they would probably find out anyway yeah. that I was autistic, yeah. I had ADHD, so there's no point in me hiding it. And it makes me a better teacher um, to the children. It also makes me a better teacher for their parents as well. Um, the children who are in school, one boy that I worked with last year um, started off by telling me a lot about how I don't know if the reason that I'm angry all the time is because I have ADHD or if I'm angry all the time anyway and ADHD has nothing to do with that. And I think that's because there isn't really a lot of aftercare for mm. children. Um, I'm probably making a big judgment here, which may be incorrect and other people might disagree. But some of us who get diagnosed as adults, um, I suppose a lot of us pursue our diagnosis. Obviously, so, um, some of us, including myself, we, we um, firstly with my ADHD diagnosis, we get um, our diagnosis amidst a mental health crisis and maybe yeah. we weren't yeah. expecting it. But then there are a lot of us who have thought about it, have considered ourselves for a while, have done a lot of Googling, of speaking speaking to other people. So when we do eventually get a diagnosis, we are expecting it and we can and it's a relief to us. But to children, a diagnosis is something that's often done to them without um, them really knowing what is happening. They um, are taken to see to see some doctors. They're taken to see some psychologists, and people um, and adults talk about them and ask them questions. And all of a sudden, they are told that they are this thing that they don't understand. And then they're not supported necessarily to understand it afterwards. The support tends to be towards the parents and how to cope with them, yeah. the yeah. teachers and how to cope with them, and not really the child and how to um, understand themselves. And I know that certainly as a child, I, I was sent to see psychologists and things, but at the time it was really for behaviour. Um, yeah. I was um, Apparently I was a bad girl, you know, I, I did things I wasn't supposed to do. And I remember psychology being something that was done to me. It was a, as a punishment. I, um, I had done something that had upset some people and had um, made people unhappy. So I went to see these psychologists and I can't really remember what you know happened they could have been very lovely people but it was certainly a punishment to me and I'm very conscious that that is how a lot of our children will feel yes some of them might then feel that especially if they get really good support and good care and it's explained to them well and their parents talk to them about it it might open up you know uh, this is why I am slightly different and in elementary school that's not necessarily what I see I see a lot of confused children who don't know their place in the world, but know they're different and know that and don't understand if the way that they are feeling is linked to this this diagnosis they have, or if it's just their personality and really just want to be like everyone else. And there's a lot of kind of building them up and their self-esteem and helping them work out you know, who they are from their own perspective and not projecting anything onto them, but also 
like kind of showing them that you know I am an I, I have a I have a house, I have a, I have a child, I have a partner, you know, I have a car, I go to my job every day, I went to university, and you can live an average life just like me, yes. sort of thing, and um, I think that sometimes we, in the neurodiversity movement, we look at a lot of our famous people, our singers, and you know, our actors, and things, and look, look what they have accomplished, and that's great, but we want to see the normal people, Yes. Um, and children need the normal role models. They need to have teachers or doctors or, you know, youth club workers or people that they know in average everyday life that are just like them, just to have, just so that they can see where their place is in the, the community at, white, at large. It's something to aspire to. It's yeah, achievable. It's right. realistic. Yeah. Also, and I think what was one of the things, one parent and I hadn't really appreciated this until this happened. One parent of a little girl um, um, cried when she found out that I was autistic because all I think all I mean all parents. I'm a parent. When you when you have a child, you worry about their future anyway. You worry about you know whether they're going to be able to take care of themselves, whether they're going to be able to have a good life. But then when you throw in a disability on top of that, you worry more because it seems that society has thrown up a barrier to them. And this woman burst into tears because I think it was the first time where she had been given an example of uh, of a, a woman. She had a daughter or, um, that her that her daughter could one day just be and not that I am particularly anything special but I am just an average normal human being I am I'm doing a job I'm having all of these kind of normal things that society expects from you and I think she just felt a lot of relief of kind of oh my daughters now might actually be able to do that and um because uh, we'd spoke, she, her daughter had quite high support needs, and as a child, so did I. It's kind of strange right. that I was never diagnosed, but you know, that's just the way that our understanding has moved on. And some of we were talking about the support needs, and I was saying, Well, I used to do that too. And she kind of looked at me as if, Thank God, you know, someone who used to do this too has now gotten over it. There's like a light at the end of the tunnel, sort of thing. That's fascinating so, to me because. In our community, in the neurodivergent community, especially in the autistic community, the online relationships and interactions between autistic adults and parents, I'm sorry, non-autistic parents of autistic children can be very challenging. So the idea that there's this real world interaction between a very important person in that child's life, their school teacher, there's almost nobody more important than you know their mother or their family. Mm-hmm. And to know that, like, here's somebody that is in the child's life day in and day out, can be a role model, an example, mm-hmm. can identify in many ways that parents cannot. Yeah. And I have to wonder, has it given you opportunities to help parents to understand their children better? Definitely. Um, I certainly think that all of the parents that I've worked with have been very respectful towards me and they've really valued my opinions. Um, and I think that that's probably down to, like, down to the way I've been able to communicate with them. And I know that we're not famed 
for our communication skills and I certainly have communication issues but I'm good now as an adult on um, having gone through a long period of reflection on myself and communicating about how I feel and I suppose in, the, in that whole double empathy sort of realm where autistic people can identify how other autistic people feel and we can um, and we understand each other's communication I'm quite able to to with the children I worked with some of whom have really high support needs even though they're in a we have maybe a slightly different situation in Scotland where we will have children who have very high support needs and are non-verbal in mainstream schools because we have what's called a presumption of inclusion so all children have the right to be um, in to be educated in their community and in their community school and it may then be further from that that it's then decided that placement isn't suitable and then they may go into a placement in a specialist provision so some of the children I work with do have quite high support needs and I can still understand a lot of their motivations a lot of the time and why they did certain things and why they were feeling certain ways and have been able to communicate to other teachers and also to parents well I think that the motivation behind this was and have spoken about and maybe if you know you use these kind of strategies and um, parents particularly have always been very respectful of that and have always and you know with a good dialogue being able to describe well actually maybe I don't think it's like that because this is what's happened elsewhere and that's given me extra information so I, I, I've always felt that I've had a good relationship with parents and um, regardless of whether their child had higher support needs or or what people perceive as lesser support needs although we know that's not necessarily true but um, I've, um, I've never really particularly found parents and me to have any conflicts in that way, um, colleagues maybe more so, and other education staff probably a lot more so than I would say with parents. But definitely, I think that some maybe some of the things that play out online um, aren't um, are maybe maybe the tone that is that is that you can put in in writing online is maybe not. Um, conducive to a great conversation but if you speak to people in person you're um, you, you can sometimes come to a more common ground I feel uh, that's brilliant and some of the things you were describing and in, in your school system are certainly I think by, based on my understanding very different from here in the US mm-hmm. I, I think um, I could be very wrong about this but I think a student with higher support needs is unlikely to have an opportunity to learn with their peers. That's my understanding of it. But again, I'm not fully certain. I've spent a lot of time in Texas and in Pennsylvania. Um, I have a lot of family in both states, have a lot of friends. I have ex-partners in both states. So I've spent time both um, there. Um, and um, I, I know teachers and people and parents um, there, and it's certainly my understanding that in the US, the system. I, I not I, I'm not just saying in the US. I think this is like that in most countries. I think that there is a bit more of a filtering off into specialist provisions, um, and it, it, inclusion here is um, 
for in some sectors sometimes a bit of a dirty word inclusion has not been funded properly here so you will sometimes have children with very high support needs and if those support needs are physical they will be met almost automatically but when those support needs um, come to learning and unfortunately autism um, and ADHD kind of fall a little bit into that and also um, emotional sort of support needs and um, we call we um the acronym that's used is SEBN, Social, Emotional and Behaviour Needs. So if you have children that fall into that category, there is a, you know, a, a sort of a, a bit of support, um, but, but not, not anywhere, anywhere near enough and not anywhere near enough consistently. And children are certainly expected to try a bit harder. Um, and you, they'll get maybe support for a while and then if they haven't tried a bit harder then the child's at fault and it's there's not necessarily always the acceptance that this is the way that they are um, so inclusion's not a perfect system but um, it is certainly possible I've worked with children in mainstream schools um, with a variety of disabilities physical, hidden, um, seen, unseen sort of um, and learning disabilities that um, would not, they, they would not be learning in the same way as you would expect their peers to learn, but that's not to say that they're not learning. They're just maybe not um, performing, I suppose, or um, doing the exact same sort of output as their peers would be, but they still have the right to be educated in their in their community school and with their local setting. So it is a little bit different. Sounds like m many opportunities globally for Im improving the situation. And, and something you said sounded familiar to, to a theme that disappointed me at the Stanford Neurodiversity Summit. There were some great things being shared there. And then there were some, I th think, regrettable reminders that we have a long way to go where people, um, non-autistic people working in our space, uh, suggesting that autistic students need to push through their issues or autistic uh, job seekers need to push through their issues and mm. nothing about uh, supporting our needs that are, that are different. Yeah. We don't have issues. We have needs and our needs are just like a little different than everybody else. And I also think as well, um, just during lockdown, I, ha I have a few friends who are also teachers and are autistic and we just had our own little, we were just, we were normal friends and we had, we spoke to each other, you know, online via like, you know, messenger, Facebook sort of thing. And um, but back in very early July during lockdown here, I had um, done a presentation similar to this with um, Scottish Autism Charity and they were contacted by yet another teacher who was autistic and kind of organically from her being then put in contact with me, we decided to start an autistic teachers Facebook group. And it's a secret group because unfortunately not all autistic teachers are able to be out to right. um, at school. And we have, um, well, it's mainly UK teachers. We've got teachers from America, Canada, Australia, Uruguay and things. We've got teachers from all over the world. We don't... Um, um, we're not you know limited to a specific UK group and what's very unfortunate is that there's so many teachers that don't feel that they can be out as autistic in school and 
what's come from a lot of our sort of we it's a a group that's about us personally as autistic teachers not about teachers who work with autistic children and we just talk about our own issues in school and and sort of share anecdotes and vent about different things and one thing that's quite sad is that there is a consistency across all of those countries and across nearly everyone in that we are kind of just expected to pull through and get on with it and um, reasonable adjustments, which we, which we might expect, um, all of a sudden seem unreasonable, maybe to some of our managers. And what strikes me is when we've kind of unpicked a lot of it is actually a lot of our, the reasonable adjustments you could make for us, you could make for every single member of staff and it would make everyone's life easier. And I think that's one of the things I've been involved in the last few years is research and inclusive pedagogy in education and how to make your educational environment inclusive for children, you know, who are autistic, dyslexic, dyspraxic, um, ADHD, what even though they might have hit, they might not know who they are, they might, th those disabilities might be hidden and all of, and basically all of the supports that you can put in place for a dyslexic child benefit every single child in the class. All of the supports you put in place for an autistic child benefit every single, there's nobody who is disadvantaged by being in that classroom with those supports. And I think that that's something that needs that when, when I hear you know uh, things like from the Stanford University the Stanford sort of summit and from other things where we are kind of we have to get on with it and, and job seekers have to go on with it children have to go on with it actually if people were more accommodating to us then not only would we thrive but I think everybody would thrive so it is a disappointing discourse but hopefully something that we can influence and we can change and I think that the online community is a very positive online community. And um, we obviously have our issues. We have, um, and we all come across those issues at the same time. But I think general, the fact that there is a community and that com and we have a voice and we're, um, we're, we get connect, we get connected to each other, and then feel that we can increase our voice, then is 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 only going to bring good things. But I just hope that we're listened to in the long run. So, so basically, we need Headmaster McConnell to <laughs> enforce these changes, so that we have an example: a school that's doing quite well with adjustments for all, enjoying the yeah. curb cut effect. Uh, in, in other words, adjustments made for one benefit many or all if we i feel like if we had one school that did really well for a very diverse population of students it, it could change education for everyone i think that you, there's there are probably examples um covid stopped i was supposed to be coming over to do a bit of research um during we call it the easter holidays here but it's, i suppose it's like spring break but um, maybe a little later than spring break, it's um, sort of mid-April, we have a two-week period and I was supposed to be coming over to the US to visit some schools um, to see some examples. I think that um, you're, you limit yourself if you, only view if you only view educational examples in your own country. As I said, this is a sort of a practice that I've been researching for years. I have a book that I've almost finished on the edits of that should be out next year about inclusive pedagogy and it's and it is 
using examples from the US and internationally and about how you can include children in a classroom environment all the way from like your pre-K up to your high school um, and just like e even the simple things like if you're having text on the wall if you're putting signage up on the wall what font are you using are you using gloss laminate that's going to shine on their face in the sun and give them sensory issues is um, is your font size is your text size big enough um, is it at the children's eye level if you want them to read it is it at the eye level or even things like if, if you don't want them to read things that are on the wall and you don't want to look at display them to look at displays in the wall, you want them to go through the corridors, then don't put things there. <laughs> you know, it's it's simple sort of things like that, a lot of which don't cost a lot of money, up to other issue, other things that do cost money to implement and are much more sort of integral to the, the learning in the classroom. But all of the just unpicking and thinking of all of the things that help with focus and attention and organization and literacy and um, feeling um, sort of culturally involved in the school as well behavior policies for example and not and, and then altering them so that you're not having to always make adjustments for the disabled kid um, if you're having to, if you've got a policy where you have to make adjustments, should you have that policy in the first place? Why not get rid of that policy and make the policy where you just th th that suits all? So it's it's unpicking a lot of ideas around that in a school environment. I, I love this, and I I did pick out of there that there's a book coming. So yes. now I have an excuse to ask you back onto the podcast. When the, Excellent. <laughs> when the book comes out, um, we need to have you back to talk about it and uh, get everybody reading it so that we can definitely. fix education globally. <laughs> well, we can only hope, but yeah, definitely. I'd love to come back. So um, what are some examples of things that would make it easy? Like you mentioned, there are all these neurodivergent teachers on this Facebook group. And I know from my own experience in engineering leadership, there are people very much like me that aren't out. They'll, they'll come to me and tell me um, I'm autistic or I'm dyslexic or I'm some combination of, of conditions and I'm afraid to come out. So I'm wondering like, what are some of the things, the adjustments that can be made globally for teachers to feel more included? We talked a bit about students. I think that um, the, the teacher, first of all, I think maybe teachers as a base need to be given training in what autism is. And that can be for the students, but also then might have that knock-on effect of being beneficial for colleagues. Um, I know that um, in Scotland and in England, and um, I can't speak for the US system, but I'm going to make a, I'm going to surmise it's kind of similar globally. We go to university college to learn to be educators and a lot of that is focused on the curriculum and so it should be because delivering the curriculum is your job but also 
children are your job um, young people are your job as well and young children and young people come with emotions and differences and ways of learning uh, and then nowadays it seems to be that different ways of learning are, oh, they might learn this math problem in this way, but if they don't learn it that way, then teach them this way, then teach them this way. It's not necessarily unpicking their learning so um, their le and their processing. And I think that if there was a baseline of um, support um, in teacher training education to understand autism, then that would be a good start. Secondly, I think a greater understanding of the double empathy problem. I, I, I am really fascinated by the double empathy problem because I think it doesn't just necessarily apply to autistics and um, allistics. I think it's also really relevant maybe to just anyone from a different cultural group, older yeah. people, younger people. And I think that if we had a better understanding of our obligations to make effort to um, speak to people, to make effort to communicate with them and to meet people where they are at rather than where we want them to be, then that would that then it would be a, a much easier transition for autistic members of staff to be more comfortable with themselves, for them to know that they can speak as they are without having to mask, without having to perform, um, without having to be that role. Um, education is certainly very female dominated. And I know as a woman in education, I really struggle with a lot of um, small talk, um, a lot of traditionally sort of female characteristics and things. So I've always found that difficult to be accepted. Whereas I would go in and I would want to talk about work and I would be very focused whereas other women didn't want to talk about that. Whereas I think if maybe there had been more of an un that double empathy understanding where people just were happy to meet me where I was. Many people were. I made lots of friends who were just happy to meet me the way that I was and didn't have an expectation of me. And we got on well, whereas people who didn't think I performed or conformed to a certain ideal um, found me a bit more difficult. And I think that um, regardless of whether it's education or any sort of workplace, I think that sort of double empathy understanding would be really beneficial. But I do think that there is a, a need for training, a, a, at least a baseline of training about autism um, to know that I suppose actually is to myth bust so that when you hear things that are unreasonable, you're able to think, well, you know, that's that's not true. I can I can, I can myth, if, I, if you've got that baseline of training, then you can discount all of the myths that you that you would hear about it. Oh, oh, Miss McConnell, I have a question. Yes, Mr. Hedmark. <laughs> what is double empathy? So double empathy problem um if you Google Damien Milton, um, he um, has written a lot about this. The double empathy problem is that where two, I suppose, different opposing, not opposing groups, that's the wrong word to use, two different groups of people in this particular case, autistic people and neurotypical people, have difficulty understanding where each other is coming from and where each and what each other's motivations and desires are. I suppose that links to a bit of theory of mind in there about the understanding other groups' motivations and desires. Whereas within autistic groups, and I certainly find this very 
very true amongst myself and my autistic peers. We can understand each other. We understand each other's motivations. We understand uh, there was even a piece of research just um, out the last couple of days. I retweeted it on Twitter, but I can't remember who it was from. It was from an American group. And um, it was all about how autistic children can understand when other autistic children are happy or sad, how they are feeling. But the neurotypical people, neurotypical people can't necessarily understand that within autistic groups, just as we can't understand that necessarily, how, how, how they're feeling and how what they're um, communicating um, in neurotypical groups. And double empathy um, sort of relates to autistic people always being asked to understand neurotypical people, always being asked to look at what their social motivations are, to um, conform to their ways, whereas really there's a double, you know, there's two actors in this while we have our obligation to try to understand, they have their obligation to understand us and communicate with us and meet us where we are as well and understand, I suppose, that not everybody is going to act in the way that you want, that you expect them to act, and that's okay. So, like I say, while double empathy is really about autistic people and neurotypicals, it does. It is about other groups, intercultural groups as well. When you meet someone from another culture, they have a different use of language, a different use of body language and facial expression, and um, they have different cultural expectations. Um, older people and younger people, men and women at some times, if we want to go be, be gendered about it, they like have different sort of cult expectations in um, between each group and everybody under, understands with all of those other groups that you have to meet in the middle somewhere and that both actors have to you, um, ha have to um, communicate and make allowances for the other party. But in an autistic and allistic relationship, that doesn't always happen. And that's really what the double empathy problem is, is that it, the, the, the two party that we autistic people have have community and have a cultural understanding amongst ourselves and um, we can and we can we we can get on with each other and we can understand why certain things happen it's just when we are communicating with neurotypical people that doesn't always come through hope that was a good explanation but that was I, 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 as, as best as I've been able to articulate it to children um, at times. So that's my understanding of it. That was not just a good answer, but uh, for those watching this on YouTube, I was fist pumping the air <laughs> while you were giving the answer because uh, I, I think this, this was one of those moments of like great clarity. I, I'd heard of this before, but I know a lot of our listeners may not have. Yeah. And it really helps, uh, I think, to bring clarity to why it's so hard when people who aren't like us will um, maybe give us a poor performance review at work. Yeah. And it's not necessarily that we were doing anything wrong, mm -hmm. but that the person assessing our behavior and our performance uh, isn't coming far enough to understand us. 
Yeah. And we're doing all of the heavy lifting to be understood. Yes. And we are trying, like, there's a common thing that's used, like, social stories with children. And social stories are where you have a social situation and you... um, you, um, and that the autistic child doesn't seem appear to understand that they don't seem they haven't taken the social cues they haven't observed the same way that other children would observe and then a social story is written for them to help them like understand this is what we do this is what society does and this is how you understand that and I often think why are there no social stories for neurotypicals why don't they like why do they why do they say things and they don't mean exactly what they say like why how are you you know we, we are very literal if someone says how are you do you really want to hear how I am like you know we and we'll tell them exactly how we are and that's not what they want to hear and it sometimes takes us many years to work out that actually they say things but these are just catchy phrases that where there's a set answer to them and the set answer is not really the correct reply and I I, I sometimes think why is there not social stories for neurotypicals that tell them that that's odd <laughs> and that that's and that that's not the type of behavior that we expect and that's not the type of behavior that a lot of people expect because let's face it there's a lot of us you know there's there's an awful lot of you know neurodivergent people out there in the world who are all navigating this neurotypical society and we and we're all navigating it sometimes silently by ourselves and we're and struggling whereas actually we all clubbed together a little bit and told them off, then maybe it would be, maybe they, they would employ a bit of double empathy and would maybe be more effective communicators to us. So I think that, um, that double empathy for me is uh, just as some, like, it's I suppose the, the best way to describe it is take just taking someone as they are and accepting them as they are and meeting them where they are and not applying an expectation a behavioral expectation to them not kind of think not overthinking their tone of voice not overthinking their body language and just taking what they've said to you as they are without going away and then saying oh do you think that the reason they said this was because and just just letting people get on with their lives kind of thing so i think employing a bit of double empathy would be of the benefit to everyone in society. Well, so I, you know, I run two podcasts right now. I have Neuroverse, which is this one. And the Neuroverse is meant just for me to give other neurodivergent people a platform to share a little about themselves and their stories and what's important to them. The second podcast is Autism First Language. And that's just my opportunity to shout into a mic and shake my tiny fist at the sky. And now I'm feeling like I need a third podcast if I'm masochistic enough. And it would be social stories for neurotypicals. You know, often I've, I've sometimes, sometimes people have posted things on Twitter and, think, and I've replied underneath saying, someone should really fund a research project into neurotypicals. Because sometimes I kind of feel that we're we're often like the 
you know, the 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 beings, you know, the undiscovered species were spoken about as if, you know, were kind of exhibits in a museum and were a- aliens from another planet who have somehow been let out amongst amongst everyone and were being were being studied. And actually, you know, we're quite straightforward people. And we're quite straightforward. We um, and there's not a lot of sides often to us. And I I do definitely think that um, social stories for neurotypicals or research projects for neurotypicals would not only be a good podcast, but probably a very a very good thing for humanity. <laughs> so I fully support you in that. Okay, so now I have a I have a bad idea to go into the weekend with. <laughs> And on that note, Laura McConnell, it has been a great pleasure to have you visiting the Neuroverse today. This was the best day of school ever, (laughs) and my brain is richly nourished. I'm sure all of our listeners have, have learned a lot today as well, and I thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. How how can people connect with you or follow your work online? So I'm on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Laura F. McConnell. McConnell is M-C-C-O-N-N-E-L-L. Um, and I have a website which is www.lauramcconnellalltheoneword.com. And we'll have all of that in the show notes for you. I'll also get from you a link to the Facebook group you talked about, if that's okay. Yeah, we don't. So the Facebook group, we don't have a link to it as it's a secret Facebook group. Oh, However, shit, people secret. can... I know it's a secret. Shh. However, if you are an autistic teacher or you know an autistic teacher who would benefit from that, then if you email me at hello at lauramcconnell.com, then I can send them the link to add them to it and, and get them in. It's only a secret based on the fact that some people just aren't out to their employers Absolutely. and don't want it to be searchable on Facebook. So autistic and neurodivergent teachers, you are not alone. There's a community waiting for you. Uh, email Laura and find your people. And Definitely. You're not alone. So this, is, this has been a great pleasure. I thank you. And until next week, please be kind to yourself. Be kind to other people. Especially be kind to people that can't do anything in return for you. They probably need it the most. And I appreciate you, and I will see you all next time.